all ninjas, calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. One of the things I ask people when I suspect this, and that is, do you ever get hangry? This podcast is sponsored by the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your host and acupuncturist, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 217 with naturopath and genetic expert and our very good friend, Bob Miller. Also, welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode, you will learn when inflammation and free radicals are the good guys, how your blood is affecting your health, and how sulfites make you sick. Thanks, Aurora. And we're back. After a month or more away, we're back from vacationing in Kowlock, tanned, rested, ready to go. And enjoying the balmy 22-degree Fahrenheit upstate New York weather. Readjusting to the balmy 22 degrees. We say that because it can get a lot colder. Yes, it was colder last week. (laughs) 22 is kind of normal for this time of year. Yeah. Anyway, it's cold. As you all know. And, as you all know, Lyme disease is an international problem. Each week we have listeners join us from all over the world, and this past week we've had listeners from Spain to Sweden and from Panama to Nigeria. So you think I talked enough about the cold weather here in central New York and you're moving us along? We're moving, well, yes, I would very much like to move back down to the equator with Panama and Nigeria, definitely. Oh, okay. (laughs) And also a big shout out. To you longtime Lime Ninjas, you know who you are. Aurora and I really appreciate you listening. We should start a club or something. We kind of are a club. Yeah. If you're listening, you're part of the club. And we'd like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. We're glad you tuned in. And speaking of tuning in, this week's top 10 cities are the top 10 tune-in cities are... Marshalltown, Iowa. Number nine, Walnut Creek, California. Number eight, Elk Grove, Illinois. Number seven, Brooklyn, New York. Number six, San Francisco, California. Number five, Canton, Connecticut. Number four, Stockbridge, Georgia. Number three, San Jose, California. Number two, New York, New York. And number one, El Cerrito, California. How'd I do with my R's there? You did great. Awesome. Okay, Roy, tell us a little bit more about our good friend, Bob Miller. 
Bob has served as a traditional naturopath for 20 years and earned his naturopathic degree from Trinity School of Natural Health. Recognizing there is not a nutritional supplement line on the market comprehensive enough to address all of the possible genetic variants, he began working with a national company, Professional Health Products, to formulate an epigenetic line of products. Thanks, Aurora. And what's interesting about this interview, it's going to kick off a year-long theme, and we're going to be talking about iron dysregulation in a big way. Uh, the heme pathways, how the body makes heme molecule and how it uses it and how it breaks it down. And also just we're going to bring in Morley Robbins to talk about iron again. And I think for people with Lyme disease, this these iron pathways, these heme pathways are massive. And that's what Bob Miller's study number, Lyme study number six that we're talking about, or is it seven? This is number six. Number six. The Lyme study number six is showing that once again, these iron pathways are so very important. Iron mismanaging the body leads to chronic inflammation. So it doesn't matter whether or not you still have a bacteria that's causing problems in your body. If these iron pathways get dysregulated, it can lead to all kinds of chronic problems. So yep. you must take care of your iron pathways, your heme pathways. Yep. And that's what we're going to try to highlight today, convince you of that. And we'll bring other guests in during the year to really take a look at this in depth. Yes. And just a quick thing, heme as in hemoglobin, we're talking about different parts of the blood. Well, it's blood not just blood. It's not just blood. It's not just blood. No, heme is a molecule or a, a large protein that carries oxygen, and their heme centers in like the nitric oxide enzymes. There's heme centers. There's myoglobin. So it's not just hemoglobin. We think about hemoglobin and okay, red blood cells, and that's where it is. That's where most of it is because there's just a massive number of red blood cells. But there's these heme molecules, particulates, whatever they are, chemical things, heme. Anyway, it's a heme. It's the name of a chemical. <laughs> enzyme so, is like a part of an enzyme. Anyway, the, these heme molecules need to be in lots of different places. It's not just red blood cells. It's not just red and blood cells. And I don't I don't have the list memorized off the top of my head. They're like, I don't know, a dozen different places heme is used. Maybe more. Maybe I don't even know all the places the heme is okay. used. But there are eight or nine regular ones that you, you mostly understand what they're doing. However, it's not just blood. Okay, don't make okay. that mistake. So it's okay. more than blood. Blood's super important, right? It just overwhelms everything else because there are trillions and trillions of red blood cells, and there's lots of hemoglobin in the red blood cells, but that's just one place it shows up. So uh, this is critically important, the heme. If heme isn't working, then a lot of enzymes just shut down and our health. This is why I think it's so important. So I'm, just, I'm glad you spoke up there. So Bob Miller is going to kind of kick the ball off here and explain what he found in the Lyme study number six and why this is so important. And we're going to follow up this theme multiple times this year. And if you're not looking at your heme pathways and your iron pathways, you need to start. That said, here's our interview with Bob Miller. Hello, Bob. This is McKay Rippey from Lime Ninja Radio. Hi. Good to be with you again, buddy. Bob, it's so awesome to have you back. I think you're our number one guest in terms of number of times you've been on the show and in terms of interest from our audience. So I'm always thrilled to have you back, and I know my audience is as well. Well, it's just uh, quite an honor for us to be part of this and quite an honor that uh, 
you know, the work we're doing is so appreciated. But our bottom line always is uh, we want to help as many people as, as we can. And uh, that's what keeps us going to, to find answers. And we're going to keep plugging away until we've looked under every rock we can find. Now, most people are familiar with you and your work, but we're going to be talking about Lyme study number six. Mm-hmm. And what keeps you going with this as a topic? I mean, you think one study, okay, two, three, that's kind of interesting. But six, there's what, – what keeps you motivated with this? What do you keep discovering? What are you looking for? Sure. Well, you know, interestingly, when we did study number one, uh, we found that there was higher absorption of iron because of the, you know, the genes associated with higher absorption of iron. And, and that helped quite a lot of people, but not everybody. You know, then we kept looking. And then we later saw that there was more things related to an imbalance of NERF2, which is the production of antioxidants. And that helped a fair amount of people, but not everyone. You know, then in our future studies, we found that there was an imbalance of mTOR and autophagy, where environmental factors combined with epigenetic factors was throwing mTOR out of balance, and therefore the body didn't clean. And I believe we have uh, interviews on all of these, if, if people are interested. And that, helped, again, helped a lot of people, but there were still some that said, yeah, you know, Bob, we, we tried everything here, but I'm, I'm still not there. So... You know, one of the things I'd like to start out by saying is, you know, when people say we're doing studies on Lyme disease, they think, you know, we're finding the genes that if you have these, you're going to get Lyme disease. And I want to make sure that's not what anybody thinks we're, we're looking at here. This isn't like the BRCA genes that are associated with breast cancer or the APOEs that are associated with dementia. These are genes that I believe when they're variated, create toxic conditions in the body that if you get bit by a tick, you just don't have as much strength in your immune system or you're toxic enough that the Lyme say this is a cool place to live. So I just want to be very clear that when we do these studies, you know, people won't say, oh, my gosh, I've got those SNPs, so therefore I have Lyme disease. That's not it. It's just setting up a predisposition so that if genetic and epigenetic factors come together in the proverbial perfect storm, then the tick bite comes along. These are the people that environment or terrain inside the body is more susceptible to, to Lyme disease. And uh, so that's the naturopathic philosophy. It's, it's the environment of the body that allows the pathogen to, to thrive. I have a suspicion, same deal with Epstein-Barr, chronic fatigue, uh, mold sensitivity. Uh, I think all of these things that we're seeing plaguing people today, and even mast cell activation, because we'll be talking about mast cells today, uh, I think is all related to the same thing. Epigenetic and genetic factors colliding to make ideal conditions. Now, that's you bring up such an interesting point because I know you're interested in moving away from even talking about the genetics per se, the specific SNPs, and talking about the enzymes that the genes make and using that as a more, I don't know, robust way, a more clean way of talking about what's going on. Because that's just, I mean, that's really, the genes are nice, but it's the work that they're doing that's what's important. Is that correct? Exactly. That's absolutely correct. And so, can there be multiple genes associated with an enzyme, or is it pretty much one gene per enzyme? 
Uh, to my knowledge, there's there's one gene per uh, per enzyme, but there's multiple RS numbers or or SNPs that can be part of that. So, for example, the you know the enzyme that makes glutathione, uh, you can have multiple multiple SNPs that take different parts of making it. So, for example, with glutathione, there's enzymes that turn the cystathione into cysteine. There's enzymes that get you your glycine. Then there's enzymes that put cysteine and and glycine together. Then another enzyme that adds glutamine to it, and then another one that builds it all together. So there isn't a glutathione enzyme. There's multiple, but they all take steps to that final end of making that master antioxidant glutathione. And then, what what do I want to ask here? There's so there there are multiple steps for making something like glutathione and, and many other processes in the body like that, that take many enzymes and then the genetics behind that. And then within the gene itself, you have this, the SNP, the, the two uh, pair coding that can yes. be, be different. In some cases, the variants provide extra protection for something. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they provide a weakness in the production of an enzyme or the enzyme, they talk about being misfolded, right? So it doesn't quite have the right shape to work chemically. Exactly. So I often tell my clients that this is like the the uh, the DNA is the blueprint and it's giving instructions on how to take all these nutrients inside the body and mix them together. It's kind of like if someone's making a cake, it says, you know, take the eggs, take the milk, put them together this way. And so if you think of it as the blueprint or the recipe, uh, that can be doing its job perfectly, or it can be doing its job not as well. It can have misinstructions. But that's just half the equation. Then the other piece is the raw ingredients that go together and the cofactors. So people tend to think so much emphasis on genetics, and that is very important. If the genes are not capable of putting things together properly, you either get too much or not enough, or just not the right type of thing that does the job. But if you don't have the raw ingredients, or you don't have the cofactors, it's not going to happen either. So if you have a recipe that has the wrong ingredients written down, you're not going to get a very good cake. But if, on the other hand, you don't even have the raw materials, things are going to be worse. And then third piece to this is that sometimes there's blocking agents, heavy metals and other things, will mess things up. So even if you have good genes and all the cofactors and all the ingredients and say a lead or a mercury or arsenic or something comes along and says, yeah, I'm going to just put a monkey wrench in here so that it doesn't work. So those are all the things that can go together. And that's why I call it the 3D chess game, sometimes played underwater because there's so many factors that come together. Now that reminds me of, excuse me, that reminds me of stress as a kind of epigenetic factor and how it's such a broad term. So almost one way of of talking about stress is one of those factors that you talked about. So it messes up either the the stressor of having not the right ingredients for the cake or the wrong instructions for the cake or the wrong cofactors for the cake, Mm -hmm. Um, that then all of a sudden things start going, going the way they're supposed to. And stress can come from like you said, epigenetic things like lead poisoning, toxicity. You mentioned in the earlier studies, you're talking about all these other epigenetic factors that could come come in, and that's plastic in the environment, that's EMFs, 
that's you know poor diet, too much sugar, estrogens, phytoestrogens, all these other factors that that come into play. Oh yes, very complex. For people who are looking for simple answers, they're going to be disappointed because I don't think there are any. And we've really got to look at this from a ten thousand feet bird's eye view and look at all the factors that come together. That's why I tend to think long term. I've got to be able to take all this data and put it with some kind of artificial intelligence or deep learning that can look at all these variables and start putting it together. Because I don't even know if humanly possible you can step back and factor in how everything interconnects with each other. Uh, it's like this giant spider web. And touch one piece of the spider web and the rest shakes. And that's how I think we need to look at this as we move forward with you know, personalized functional genomics. That would be so amazing. I know they've done some work with uh, like computer reading of cancer scans and mm-hmm. found that the, the, the algorithms that they had were factors more accurate. And they're, you know, they're wondering, well, is it the fatigue of the operator? Is it just the computer's better at doing certain things? But when it does come into juggling, you know, it's one thing to juggle 12 balls. You're amazing, right? But like you said, there's so many factors that go into this. You're juggling 200 balls. And at some point, it's just too much for the brain. Exactly. And then, you know, the, the what what you're doing in your practice is you're zooming way out, bird's eye view, but then you have to go down to, you know, the ant level view and, you know, one specific snip or something like that, and then zoom back in and zoom out. And that's... Like you said, we need some artificial intelligence. That would just be awesome. Well, hopefully we're going to get there. All right. So let's start with study intelligence. Lyme disease study number six. All right. And bring it back to what what did you find that's so powerful in this study that you hadn't seen in the other five? Well, firstly, let me mention that, uh, you know, this is not the Bob Miller show. Uh, I am very fortunate that I have uh, many other dedicated practitioners who who volunteer their time to be on the research board. And of course, you're you're one of them. And I, and I do want to mention to everybody that you have made invaluable contributions. You know, I'll put an email out about something, and you're one of the first to respond and research things and come back with incredible findings. And what happened on on this one? We were teaching a class in uh, in Florida. And uh, a practitioner there by the name of Beth O'Hare was there, and she said, Bob, I'd like to talk to you about the heme pathway because I think this is very significant. And uh, so she sat down, and she had some other folks she collaborated with, and she showed us how there's this pathway of how succinyl COA from the Krebs cycle and, and glycine come together, and it goes through multiple steps to make something called heme. You know, at the time I thought, well, that's interesting because, you know, that makes our hemoglobin and, okay, that's kind of cute. But then, you know, she started sharing with us of all the things that heme does. You know, heme is responsible for making uh, a very important enzyme called SUOX, which is your sulfites to sulfates. And we'll talk about that a little bit. And she pointed out how this is involved with an important enzyme called SOD, catalase, cytochrome P450, nitric oxide one of your favorites. And then if this heme is uh, made properly, and then it starts to break down. As it breaks down, we make biliverdin and bilirubin, which is powerful antioxidants. We take our iron and carefully put it into storage of ferritin, so it's not a free radical. 
and it actually stimulates the production of something called NADPH that we'll talk about a little bit later. So clearly, Beth had my uh, my interest, and we then did uh, two webinars along with uh, her and Dr. Laurie Young, where they really uh, spoke quite intelligently about heme and all the things that can go wrong. And I was sold on this. It's like, oh, this is a big deal. So I thought, okay, let me do a study on this and, and let me see in my previous Lyme studies, because what we did is we now have 421 people who have chronic Lyme disease who said, I'd like to be part of the study. So if someone hasn't heard our podcast before, what we do is we take these 421 people and we look at a bunch of, of enzymes, you know, based on the DNA. And then we compare how many genetic variants they have in SNPs, variants, defects. It's all the same thing. And we compare that to a, you know, a stable database, which is called the 1000 Genome Project. And we look if the people with chronic Lyme have more genetic variants on some of these SNPs than, uh, or some of these genes than others do. And I was a little bit more than stunned when I saw what was going on with this heme pathway. And uh, what we can do, if you like, we can we can get into each of these just briefly, talk about uh, what they do. But before we do that, let me just talk about the downstream effects. So this heme is needed to make an enzyme called SUOX. Now, SUOX is responsible for taking something called sulfites that we get from sulfur foods and part of what's called the transsulfuration pathway and convert it into sulfates. Now, that's really important. Because uh, a little bit later, we'll talk about something I've, I've discovered and coined called the NADPH steel. And we'll get into that later. But just for right now, let's just suffice to say that if sulfites are not turned into sulfates, they will become excitatory to, as a neurotransmitter and inflammatory. And again, we'll talk about the specifics as we as we go down the path. And then if it doesn't turn into sulfates, as, you pro as everybody probably knows, we have to detox poisons from the body. There's something called phase one detox using our cytochrome P450s. And then there's multiple phase twos. People go back through our archives, they'll see where we spoke earlier about what we presented in uh, Poland, in Warsaw, Poland, uh, in May of uh, 2018. And that was that there was weakness in something called acetylation, where an acetyl group goes on to a toxin and takes it out. So now today in number six, we're talking about sulfation. And this is where a sulfur enzyme, or a sulfur group rather, is attached to a toxin. And this could be excess estrogen. It could be a xenobotic. It could be excess dopamine and excretes it in the urine. So it's a very important process of detoxification. And I have to you know, take a tip our hat here to Stephanie Seneff. Uh, she is the uh, professor from MIT who uh, is really doing an incredible job talking about how she believes glyphosate is impacting sulfation. And we can get into that a little bit. So uh, I consider her a, a valuable uh, contributor to this information as well, because she's the one who, when I was speaking in uh, Chicago in uh, May of last year, we had breakfast together and she talked to me about sulfation. It's like, okay, this is a big deal. So she believes that glyphosate or Roundup is impacting sulfation. Well, also this lack of SUOX due to a lack of heme will also do this as well. And as we dig into NADPH oxidase uh, or the NADPH steel, 
we'll see that some of these things that are supposed to be cleared by sulfation will actually again stimulate inflammation. So that's a lot of biochemistry there, but just to sum it up, if this SUOX enzyme doesn't convert your sulfites into sulfates, the sulfites are excitatory, stress you out, and inflame you. And these toxins that should be cleared by sulfation are not, which again can be excitatory and or inflammatory and make the body toxic. So that's why I was so excited to do this study and to see if in some individuals, and by golly, quite a few, this is the reason why they're more susceptible to something like chronic Lyme. So, you know, people say, well, what genes are associated with chronic Lyme? And I think we're going to find there's probably 30 different patterns. For some people, it's the acetylation issue. For some people, it's the iron issue. For some people, it may be the uh, the, the Nerf 2 and the Keep 1 being too weak. For other people, you know, it may be that uh, some other pathway that makes inflammation is, uh, is uh, you know, not regulated properly. But we found for many people that we didn't have answers to before, the issue was this heme pathway disruption, the lack of sulfation, and the stimulation that leads to mast cells. So uh, when you like, we can get into that. We'll talk about the mast cells and also how that's related to the NADPH steel. But it all can begin when the heme pathway is disrupted. So let's pause there for a second. And for people, you and I have been talking about the heme pathway for a while now, and it's almost almost second nature <laughs> at this point. But what what is heme? Well, um, heme is a protein where iron is or iron is stuck into this protein very carefully. And then this heme, as we said, makes your hemoglobin. You know, that's one thing it does. But it also, as we said, takes that SUOX enzyme, makes it work. It's also responsible for your phase one detox, many of your phase two detoxes, and your nitric oxide. So it's responsible for a lot of processes inside the body. And if you don't have adequate heme, there's a lot that can go wrong. And quite simply, I mean, we could spend, you know, three hours talking about the heme pathway, but just quite simply, inside the cell, we have something called the mitochondria through the, where the Krebs cycle creates energy. Name of the molecule doesn't matter, but there's something called succinyl COA that's made while we're making energy. And there's an amino acid called glycine. And they combine together by uh, an enzyme called ALAS. And then it goes through multiple steps, one step after another. And the final result is where an enzyme called FETCH, F-E-C-H, takes iron and carefully places it into this heme protein. And there's a lot that can go wrong inside there. So, for example, in our study, we found that the second enzyme in this heme pathway called ALAD, there was 22% more genetic variance in the Lyme group than the general population in the 1000 Genome Project. Another step down through there, 30% more variance called CPOX. And in the fetch enzyme that actually puts the iron into the heme, 15 to 40% more variance on that fetch enzyme. Now, remember, we also spoke about epigenetic factors can block. Lead blocks 
the first step, the ALAS, and lead blocks fetch. So even if you have perfect genetics, if you don't have any genetic variants at all, and you have lead from who knows whatever source, like the people in Michigan, you know, they get in their drinking water. Uh, it was in our gasoline prior to the 1970s, so it got into many of our crops. Many of the older homes had lead paint. So uh, there's uh, Dr. Gordon, one of the experts on uh, on lead, believes that there isn't a mammal on the earth that doesn't have some lead in the bones. So even just a little bit of lead can take perfect genetics and mess up this heme pathway. And then Stephanie Seneff, based upon her work, believes that glyphosate may be somehow impacting the glycine. So if indeed that is the case, and, you know, to be honest, she believes that's happening. Many credible researchers who are not, you know, pro-glyphosate think that they don't, they're not sure that that's happening. But I think it's safe to say that something is occurring with glyphosate, possibly make to mess up the heme pathway, whether it's not the glycine. But that's not proven scientific yet. It is debated. But there's a lot of credible people that do believe that the glyphosate is impacting the, the glycine. And indeed, if that's the case, there's just another nail in the coffin so that this heme is not made properly. And if that final step, if that final step of the fetch enzyme is impacted, then that heme can theoretically become a free radical. And uh, I know you've had uh, Morley Robbins on this show, who does a great job of talking about the dangers of excess iron. So when that iron is not chaperoned around properly, it is one nasty free radical. And if that isn't enough, what happens is there's something called porphyrins that get taken from one step to another inside of this heme pathway. And if they become excessive, they can even wreak more havoc. And that is there's a neurotransmitter by the name of glutamate. Now, glutamate can be your friend. It can make you intelligent, highly motivated, go-getter, getter-done kind of person. And probably a good assumption that both of the people on this call have a fair amount of glutamate. So. <laughs> but uh, glutamate needs to be turned into GABA. GABA is the don't worry, relax, be happy, chill out. And unfortunately, if these porphyrins are floating around, uh, they can actually block the GABA receptor sites. And again, I want to give credit to Beth O'Hare and Shirley, her assistant, who, who came up with this, uh, with this information. So this very well may be why we are seeing people so anxious. You know, McKay, you, you turn on the news for 10 minutes and it's like, what the heck is going on? Everybody's going out of their minds with anger and frustration and feeling victimized. And we're seeing the ADD going up. The, the, I'm stating the obvious with the autism. But as I talk to psychologists and psychiatrists who've been doing this for 15, 20 years, I'll say, how is it now compared to 10 years ago? And they say, you can't compare. The amount of anxiety and depression and agitation that people are having is unprecedented. There's likely multiple factors. And one of them might be the mast cells we'll talk about. But I wouldn't be surprised if disruptions in the heme pathway are a contributing factor uh, to some of the agitation that we're seeing. And just one other quick thought on glutamate to GABA. As part of our research, we found that if you have any inflammation going on inside the body, that further inhibits the glutamate to GABA conversion. 
It also inhibits the glutamate to glutamine conversion, which is needed to make your master antioxidant glutathione. Now, for people who are really following this and thinking ahead, they'll say, Bob, won't that make inflammation higher because you don't have glutathione? Yep. And then won't that make the glutamate to GABA conversion even worse? You betcha. So it's like, oh, this becomes a self-fulfilling, you know, feeding upon itself. And then, as we'll talk about later with NADPH oxidase, glutamate in of itself stimulates inflammation. So this is just like a forest fire feeding on itself. The, the problems with the heme pathway creates blocks in the GABA receptors. Your glutamate goes up. You get inflamed. Further inhibits the glutamate to GABA conversion. Further inhibits the production of glutathione. And we have the proverbial perfect storm. And this is possibly why when someone gets treated for Lyme and the pathogens are killed, they still feel horrible because this has you know, ignited this forest fire that just kind of begins to feed on itself. Um, and, I, and I think that's why there's such controversy sometimes of, you know, when is the Lyme still active? When is it not? And, you know, we're naturopaths here. We're functional nutritionists. We're not medical doctors. That's beyond our scope. But for those who would have the ability to delve into this, this would certainly be an interesting study to see, you know, when is the pathogen not even the problem anymore, but it just ignited this fire of inflammation that keeps burning. And I think that'll be a subject that'll be probably, you know, debated and researched uh, for years. Yeah, now that the tests are finally getting up to speed, we, we may have an answer. But for science to come along, we're looking at another 10 to, 10 to 20 years for a final answer. I know in my practice, and I'm sure you've seen it in yours too with, with people with Lyme, there's some point where the patient seems to get on top of the pathogen or pathogens on top of the Borrelia or whatever co-infections they have with there. And the symptoms are more this chronic inflammation type thing. And when I first started Lyme Ninja Radio, God, what was that? Any years and years ago, in my mind, it was like, oh, it's the bad test that the, you know, the doctors really don't know what they're talking about, saying that this is post-Lyme syndrome or whatever they're calling it these days. And I'm I'm actually coming a little bit more around to their point of view that not necessarily that the, the the infection is easy to treat and easy to cure and that there's something else going on, but that even if the the pathogen's still there, but sequestered somewhere or hanging out or hiding out somewhere, because we definitely hear those stories too. Somebody is symptom free or feeling pretty good for ten. 5, 10, 15 years, and all of a sudden they have a relapse. So the question is, is it a reinfection or is it a, a new uh, a relapse? And you know those questions we may never know. But there is this phase in treatment, and that's where most of my patients come from, where they've kind of – the antibiotics have done their job to the point where there's either no further benefit or diminishing returns. Right, the the antibiotic starts doing more harm than good, and then but the patient's still not feeling one hundred percent. It's like so. Th then what do you do? And that's where I think your studies come really into play and in highlighting some of these. You know, we're talking about the heme pathway. I was thinking, oh, it's a double edged sword. But listen, to you talk really, it's a triple edged sword. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, they're the porphyrins that can kind of get loose in the in the pathway. You know, the porphyrins are these intermediate proteins that end up as a heme molecule. 
there's the, you know, if the heme itself is not being produced, then the enzymes down the road that we were talking about, whether it's hemoglobin or the nitric oxide, anytime you need to transport oxygen, you need a heme, uh, you need a heme molecule. So, mm-hmm. you know, so, so there's that. And then with the dysregulation, anytime the iron's not being well chaperoned, like you said so eloquently, then you've got this inflammation on top of it. So this is this one area, this one pathway in the body where so much can go wrong so very, very quickly. And like you said, once the loop gets started, you know, here in upstate New York, when you get stuck in a snowbank, you know, it takes a lot to get you out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Just, you know, you're spinning your wheels and you just can't get anywhere. Sure. Let me just mention before I forget, one of the things that can be an indication that this heme pathway is disrupted. We talked about that the succinyl COA uh, is one of the ingredients for that pathway. And one of the best ways to get succinyl COA is from carbohydrates. So one of the things I ask people when I suspect this, and that is, do you ever get hangry, which is a combination of angry and hungry? And they'll be like, yeah, if I can just have a meal an hour later, it's like, oh my gosh, I need a snack. I need something sweet. And then after they get something, a carbohydrate, sometimes salty, they feel better. And what we think is happening here is that's, you know, quickly coming down through glycolysis, feeding the succinyl COA and calming down that heme pathway. And, you know, these are the people that get accused of, you know, not having self-control and, you know, they might be a little bit overweight. Or these are also people that try the ketogenic diet and it's a disaster because they do need those carbohydrates to come down through. Then they feel guilty that, well, I guess I don't have self-control and people yell at them. And I'd also like to talk a little bit about high glutamate uh, because it does make you very anxious. Um, and, you know, some well-meaning people will say, well, just relax. You know, some of the spiritual people will say, well, it's, you know, there must be some sin in your life or you're not praying enough or you don't have enough faith. Those that are more into the, to the more, uh, uh, new age things will say, well, you just meditate or you don't intend it or something like that. And these people are made to feel guilty as though somehow it's their fault. And when you've got your GABA receptor sites blocked by porphyrins, uh, you're going to be anxious and you're not going to talk your way out of it. So uh, if anyone ever has been shamed that, uh, you know, they're, they're just too anxious and it's their fault, I hope that's reassuring to them that uh, when that is going on, it's not your fault. It's a chemical reaction going on, and it's going to uh, it's going to do its thing, uh, no matter how many deep breaths you take or uh, what kind of visualization you do. And I'm not opposed to those things. I'm just saying that when that inflammation is raging like that, uh, there's very little you can do until you get those porphyrins calmed down. You get the glutamate being turned into GABA, and uh, you know, quit beating up on yourself or let people beat up on you if that is indeed what is uh, is happening. And I think that's why we see so many people with Lyme, you know, become very anxious, can't sleep, nightmares, uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes even visual hallucinations. Uh, they think there's somebody over in the corner of the room because that glutamate is so very, very high. Or they're sensitive to, to clothing and bright lights, and, uh, you know, they, they can't take a lot of stimulation because the glutamate is... Uh, is so high. So I hope that's a word of encouragement to some people out there who just can't understand uh, why this happens to them and they beat themselves up, so to speak, uh, because of that. 
Yeah, that's so important. I heard somebody say once, and it made so much sense to me, that one of the reasons why I have the day-night inversion with so many people with Lyme disease is because it's quiet at night. And just during the day, there's just too much stimulation, literally with the sunlight and with noise and just traffic noise, just TVs, things like that, that it's just too much. And so they just shut down. The body's trying to protect itself. So they essentially pass out during the day. And then at night when things quiet down and calm down, it's like, okay, you know, they can begin to open their senses again and function Ah. a little bit. And I thought that was a, you know, fits right in with this, this glutamate hypothesis. Yes. Interesting. Good observation. Before we move on, were there any other genes that showed up in the heme pathway? No, that was it. The the ALAD, the CPOX, the FETCH. Now, what happens is when your heme is made, it has to be broken down properly. And that's done by an enzyme called HMOX, heme oxygenates, oxygenates. And interestingly, we found 37% more variants in HMOX. Now, as we go along, as we learn various uh, genes, I kind of, you know, rate them to their level of importance. And and quite frankly, you know, until Beth showed us about this, I, you know, heard about the HMOX, but it's like, oh yeah, that's how you break down your heme and oh, yeah, okay. But I've now elevated that in my importance because what we're seeing, again, those people that we can't seem to find the reason for their inflammation, but everything else that worked for others doesn't work many of them have a lot of genetic variants in their HMOX enzymes. Now, I said this before, but it's worth repeating. When HMOX is broken down properly, iron gets stored into ferritin. So what happens if that doesn't happen? It very likely becomes a free radical. Heme broken down properly makes biliverdin and then bilirubin. And I remember, McKay, when we had our think tank, uh, you know, for our listeners, they, uh, they may find this hard to believe, it was Labor Day weekend, you and myself and a couple other people holed up in a in a boardroom down in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, spent our Labor Day weekend holed up in a boardroom. We didn't even go out to eat. We'd bring food in, and we just geeked out for two days and <laughs> looked at some of these pathways. Had a fantastic time. You made incredible contributions. But I'll never forget when somebody said, I think it was Dr. Young, oh, my gosh, Billy Rubin in some instances is stronger than glutathione. And we were like, no, really? <laughs> So, uh, do you remember that? Absolutely. It was yeah. mind-blowing. Yeah. So, if we don't break down our HMOX properly, we don't get this bilirubin, which is needed to protect us from uh, lipid peroxidation as well. Yeah, this is what really blew my mind. As the HMOX breaks down, we make carbon monoxide. Now, we tend to think, no, wait a minute, that's the stuff that kills you, right? Well, a little bit of it you know, acts as that signaling molecule to make glutathione and something called NADPH that we want to talk about that actually recycles your glutathione. It stimulates what's called the ATM genes, which are part of DNA repair, and the RAD50 genes, which are part of DNA repair. I'll just mention this briefly. The RAD50s, which are DNA repair, 40% more genetic variants in those with chronic Lyme. That's a the next part of our our study. Can we but now? Can, can we pause here for a second? Because we've used, you know you've said like twenty percent, thirty seven percent, forty percent variance. It in the grand scope of things, is that a lot? I mean, I I tend to think so. I, I mean, mean, that means that you know the general public might have uh, you know out of a hundred, 
the the Lyme group would have 140 SNPs. So, you know, I'm not a statistician on genetics, but it just seems if you've got a a 40% more genetic variance, that probably is clinically significant. Because, I mean, what is it? In some of the earlier studies, what what percentage variance did you find? Uh, very similar. Now, the one with the uh, with the iron was like five times the amount. That'd be like five hundred percent. Okay. Uh, but the uh, but again, I I'm not trained on statistician work. But people that I've spoken to said that is clinically significant when you know a control group has, or I'm sorry, a, a, a group has forty percent more than the control group. Uh, and now, again, this goes back to some people, uh, th- these enzymes are fine and something else is the problem. So if uh, I, I think what we, would be fascinating if we could really crunch these numbers is how these patterns go together. Right. You know, for example, if somebody just has more variants on ALAD and everything else is okay, yeah, the, probably, the body probably squeaks by. But just again, observing, just, you know, Bob Miller traditional naturopath observing, talking to people. It's when people have the ALAD, the FETCH, the HMOX, uh, and maybe the SUOX enzyme, and they live near farms where there's glyphosate, uh, or they cook with iron skillets, and, and they also have other issues with their iron. These are the people that are, you know, really inflamed. They can't seem to get to the bottom of their inflammation. They've been to 17 clinics. They've tried everything. Nothing seems to work. And then it's this proverbial perfect storm, multiple things coming together. So I tend to think that when we look at this group of 400 people, uh, 421, uh, you know, there's many people that are probably chronically sick with Lyme. They don't have any problem with their heme pathway at all. These are all okay. It's something else causing it. So from my almost layperson's standpoint of someone who doesn't have training in statistics. I think that seems fairly significant that there are that many more in this, in this wide group where for many of them, this isn't even their problem. Right. So, and and I think that's where you're talking about this artificial intelligence coming in because right now, a lot of this is based on experience and just, Oh, that's interesting. I saw that, you know, two weeks ago with somebody else and, and the, and the layering of, of variants and possible defects with the, with the enzymes. So you get a little bit over here and you add a little bit over here. And at some point there's a tipping point where the pathway comes tumbling down. Sure. Now, right? let me mention, you know, we always say that the genetics is never the diagnosis. It's like shining a light on you. So what you can do is you can go to your health professional and there are companies that measure these porphyrins. And if you're having a flare and peeling, feeling pretty poorly and you get a urine sample and you send it off, you can then actually measure if these porphyrins are high. So again, genetic SNPs doesn't mean it's happening, but it gives you a good indication. So if somebody gets hangry all the time, they have a lot of genetic SNPs here. Uh, they've got inflammation that's not explainable. Uh, they're sensitive to mold and smells and everything else and feel terrible. Well, then your practi- your health practitioner may want to say, okay, well, let's let's work with a lab that measures porphyrins and see if they are high. That way you're validating your theory. You're not just, you know, speculating based upon SNPs because you should never do that. You know, the old adage is you don't treat the SNPs. But I believe genetics is so powerful because it tells the health professional where to test, where to look. I mean, how many people who have Lyme disease have their porphyrins looked at? 
Probably not very many. How many people anywhere have their porphyrins checked? Almost right. none. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's one of the things that's fascinating about uh, the work that you and your group, and I am honored to be a small part of it, is, is doing is is elevating some of these, you know, the, the term that we've we've heard used now is the subclinical, and I love that. So th- some of these genetic defects, or whether it's a defect in a heme pathway, where somebody absolutely just can't make it, it's almost like type one diabetes, right? It's like the body just cannot make the insulin. So when the body just cannot produce one of these steps in the heme pathway, then somebody's really really sick. It's mm-hmm. like they're on the verge of dying. That's how important this is. But if it's subclinical, it kind of comes and goes in storms and is related to some other factors, then it becomes a very interesting and difficult problem to see. Even even if you do test for the porphyrins, that if you're not getting them in the middle of one of these storms and one of these uh, events, you could miss it because things could return closer to normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it becomes – you know, it becomes like you said this underwater three D chess game, but also as you suggest that as we learn more about these subclinical problems, right? The subclinical glutathione, and I want to, I want do want to get to the the NADPH steel that you were talking about because uh, I think that is also one of those kind of subclinical uh, events that shows up when things start going wrong. And it's not it's not on the normal physician's radar. It's just it's not part of their what they're trained in. I think what you're doing is really, you know, uncovering some of these interesting pathways and and how they can go so terribly wrong in somebody that's sick. And you know, it's just a different way of looking at things. And I think it's so useful. Mm-hmm. Well, our goal is to give you know the the, the doctor who really digs deeply. Uh, tools so they can think of areas to look that they didn't think of looking before. Because you can go down a lot of bunny trails. And if we can identify, you know, which rock to look under first, uh, we see that as being incredibly valuable, not only for the doctor and uh, or the health professional and for the for the patient, that they're going to get uh, answers a little bit quicker. So let's talk about NAD, NADPH, NADH. I think we mm-hmm. covered them all. There are four of them. Sure. <laughs> we did. We did. But I'll tell you what, first can we just go down the pathway of mast cells a little bit, then I'll oh, tie that Oh, of course. It. Sure. So we're hearing a lot of talk about mast cells. And I know you've done some shows on mast cells, but you know, in a, in a very brief explanation, they're white blood cells that float around, and they're kind of like our army. And when they see some pathogens or some injury, they do what's called degranulate, and they give off inflammation. And actually, in those cases, when there's a pathogen that inflammation is helpful. We tend to, you know, compartmentalize and say, oh yeah, inflammation is bad, antioxidants is good. You know, we're we're looking for, you know, heroes and villains. And I'm beginning to believe there aren't any. That, you know, in in my early teachings, I used to call the good guys the bad guys, and it's like, I'm not gonna do that anymore. Because we do need a little bit of inflammation inside the cells to act as triggers. We do need inflammation to kill pathogens. We do need inflammation to kill cancer cells. The problem is when it gets carried away. So a good analogy I heard one time in the wintertime, if you have a fireplace and you have a fire burning in there, it warms the house. If the hot embers jump out and the curtains catch on fire and the whole building burns down, we have a problem. And I think what's happening today is these mast cells are being called upon 
too much. And they're degranulating a little too much. And that's why we're seeing all this inflammation. And there are so many individuals now being plagued by excess mast cells. You know, these are the folks that a little bit of heat or even, you know, somebody touching them, massage, they, they get, you know, all red. They take their fingernail and scratch their arm. You know, they get this big red line. A mosquito bite creates this massive welt. Uh, they're very intolerant to heat or cold. And they're just in, they have this red appearance to themselves many times because these mast cells are over firing. So they're actually too good at trying to protect the body. Again, it goes back to the, you know, the fireplace warming or burning it down. And there are many, many individuals who these mast cells are being overactive. I mean, there's Facebook groups that are just all about mast cells and, and what to do about them. Uh, on, on my podcast, I interviewed uh, Dr. Thea Hardy's from Tufts University. He's doing research and pretty strongly believes that autism might be related to mast cells overstimulating the hypothalamus. Again, that's a theory, but I have a suspicion uh, he's correct. So I believe we are seeing overproduction and overdegranulation of mast cells. And let me just make one final point on that, then we'll go to the NADPH. And there's an enzyme called KIT. And the purpose of KIT is to stimulate mast cells. Again, not a bad thing when you've got something to fight. But again, in the Lyme group, 30% more genetic variants in the KIT enzymes than the 1000 Genome Project. And one other quick thing to mention, there's an enzyme called DARK, which is uh, related to fighting malaria, which is very similar to some of the Lyme conditions. 34% more variants there. So again, it comes back to, I don't think we're going to find the SNP or the gene. It's probably likely, and this would be a fascinating study, you know, to look at all these 421 people and see how many of these each of them have. You know, these are people that have been struggling for years. I wouldn't be surprised that each one of them, of all the studies we've done, you know, might have 20 or 30 of these more variated than the general public. And it takes all of those things to put all the dominoes together that creates the optimal conditions for the line. So anyway, I wanted to get that out of the way about mast cells because they're not bad. And we tend to think, oh, I, what, what can I do to knock down these mast cells? When indeed they just might be doing what they're being called upon. Now let's look at what triggers the mast cells. And there's multiple things to do that, but there's an enzyme called NOx. And that stands for NADPH oxidase. And this is the only enzyme in the body that has one purpose, and that's one purpose only, and that is to make inflammation. And we think, well, why would we want to do that? Because inflammation is bad. But again, I go back to, we've, we've got to stop thinking of, you know, heroes and villains. Free radicals can be one of your best buddies when you're fighting a pathogen, when you're fighting a cancer cell. Uh, that's why sometimes it's not a good idea to take a lot of antioxidants when you're getting chemotherapy because you're trying to oxidize the cancer cell. So we've got to shift away from good and bad, but this NOx enzyme's purpose is to make free radicals, hydrogen peroxide and superoxide, that stimulates mast cells. So in animal studies, when they've knocked out the NOx enzyme, as you can imagine, the animal died from virus or bacteria or pathogens. It couldn't fight anything off. So again, the NOx enzyme isn't bad. Now let's look at what the NOx enzyme does. 
it gets stimulated by external things, and we'll talk about those in a minute, but it uses a substance called NADPH. Fascinating, fascinating molecule. And the reason it's fascinating is let's go back to what it does. As you all know, free radicals is the problem, that when it's in excess, it chooses up and spits us out. It's an atom missing an electron. Antioxidants, like glutathione or thiodoxin, they have a spare electron. And they go up to that free radical and say, hey, Mr. Free Radical, chill out, here's an electron. However, after they do that, they're oxidized themselves. That's why we'll talk about glutathione as reduced and oxidized. Reduced means it's ready to go to help somebody out. Oxidized means it's spent. And interestingly, when the glutathione becomes oxidized, it can actually cause damage. And by the way, I, every time I look at the, the chart that we made, I think of you because you're the one who pointed out that that oxidized glutathione will combine with superoxide and nitric oxide to make the very nasty peroxynitrite. So, okay, every time I point that out to somebody, you pop into my head that uh, you're the guy who, uh, who, who found that research for us. So thank you for that clinical pearl. So we have this, uh, this uh, NADPH that comes along and recycles your glutathione, recycles your thriadoxin, actually supports the production of nitric oxide, actually supports the proper breaking down of heme by the HMOX enzyme. Uh, it is said that Otto Warburg, you know, one of the pioneers in, in research who won Nobel Prizes, was very intrigued by NADPH. And I know as I've spoken to uh, Dr. Mercola and others, they're all like, yeah, this NADPH is really a big deal. So NADPH is needed to take that oxidized glutathione, turn it back into reduced. Oxidized thriadoxin, turn it back into reduced. Make your nitric oxide. If you don't have NADPH, you don't make nitric oxide. So NADPH does a lot of good things. But interestingly, and this is what I found absolutely fascinating, my jaw dropped when I got into this research, and that is the, the NOx enzyme says to the NADPH, uh, excuse me, we got a problem over here. And sometimes I give the analogy, think of a, you know, a small town where you have a police officer, and the police officer does all kinds of good things. If somebody's in an accident or you know, somebody's hurt, they're there to help and assist and put things back together. But if the operator calls and says, we've got a robber in town, immediately switches into the I'm going to corral, arrest, and or if necessary, shoot this, this, this bad person in town. And that's what NADPH does. It has dual roles. It does all these good things. But when called upon by the NOx enzyme, it will become a free radical. So rather than recycling your glutathione, it will actually become a free radical. And again, that's not bad if it's controlled needed, and then goes back to doing what it should do. Does that make sense there, McKay? It absolutely does. Okay. So what happens then is I started looking at, well, what stimulates NOx to do its job? And I'll never forget, you know, some nights I was here at two in the morning and it's like, okay, Bob, you really got to go to bed. But it's like, oh my God, look at all these things that stimulate NOx. Let's go back to our original discussion. If you have disruption of the heme pathway, SUOX doesn't turn sulfites into sulfates. Sulfites stimulate NOx. Like, oh my God. Now, also, dopamine 
stimulates NOx. Well, the catecholamines is one of the things broken down by sulfation. It's like, oh my God. So if this SUOX enzyme doesn't turn sulfites into sulfates, the sulfites stimulate NOx. The dopamine that is not cleared out stimulates NOx. Glutamate stimulates NOx, and we spoke about that earlier. Excess iron stimulates NOx. Excess mTOR that we spoke about in other interviews stimulates NOx. Something like smoking stimulates NOx. Homocysteine stimulates NOx. So if your transsulfuration pathway is not working and your homocysteine is high, you know, I'll never forget the book, The H Factor. The higher the homocysteine, the sooner you die from all causes. There might be other mechanisms, but clearly overstimulation of NOx has got to be one of them. So when NOx is overstimulated, you're making free radicals and you're not recycling your antioxidants. And that's what I'm calling, and I've named this, the NADPH steal. That NADPH is being stolen unnecessarily at times because of sulfites, because of high homocysteine, because of high glutamate, because of high iron, because of high mTOR. And then even interestingly, histamine, that's a byproduct of the mast cells, feeds that as well. And then you have mold and the Lyme pathogens stimulating mast cells. So who knows what else we might be exposed to environmentally that might be stimulating and creating this storm. So I don't think it's a stretch to say this has to be a factor. Is it the factor? We don't know. But it's got to be a factor in many of these chronic conditions. The mold sensitivity, the Epstein-Barr, the, you know, the multiple chemical sensitivity, it just makes sense that this has got to be a player in it. Is it 10%? Don't know. Is it 80%? Don't know. That's part of the research that needs to be done. And, and I'm hoping there's actually somebody listening to this conversation and says, you know, I think our university would like to take on that study uh, because that's the kind of research that needs to be put into this. But I was stunned when I saw all the factors that will take that very helpful NADPH and use it to make free radicals. And I'm theorizing, just putting this out as a theory, that we now have epigenetic factors that we didn't have before that's taking too much NADPH and saying we have a problem to fight here when we really don't. And we're making excess inflammation and the embers are falling out of the fireplace and burning the house down. The NADPH steel. And I think that's what's starting this mast cell activation and then just causing this myriad of you know, glutathione deficiency, which then you don't clear chemicals. And then, you know, you're bothered by odors and perfume and, and cigarette smoke. And you have this inflammation that you can't seem to get under control no matter what you do. So that was the, uh, that was study number six. And I think that may be significant. Now, to give you a little hint, uh, we are now going to be putting our focus on the production of NAD+, which the body uses to make NADPH. So we're already thinking about study number seven, that if there's an ILADS uh, internationally this year, uh, we want to present it. And we are now genetically looking at all the genes that are related to the production of NAD+, which makes your NADPH. And just to give a preview, and maybe we can do another show on this in the future, just on 
the NAD when we have this all together. NAD also stimulates your PARP enzymes that do DNA repair and also stimulate what are called the sirtuins that make more of your antioxidants and hang on to your hat, slows down mTOR, and speeds up autophagy. So when we sat back and look at that one, that was another, whoa, that's a big one. So that's what we're going to go with study number seven. And even aside from that, that's going to be our focus, you know, looking at where we have disruptions that we don't make enough NAD+, which is then what goes and makes NADPH. So that's where we're going uh, in the future. But that's where we are now with study number six. Disruptions in heme lead to all kinds of inflammatory conditions, impact your sulfation, stimulate the mast cells, uh, steal your NADPH, and just uh, create uh, general havoc throughout the body. Bob, thanks so much. I know, I, at least I, on my Facebook page, I don't know if you have time to go to Facebook at all, but there are ads for NAD supplements. Mm -hmm. And like you said, there's so many, There's there's no absolute bad and absolute good in the body. It's just the percentages and, and how much of something. And at what point does it cease doing it, its job and starts uh, either inhibiting or causing damage? Mm -hmm. And and what you you bring up is, is for the most part, most scientists are trying to find the least common denominator. So when they come across anomalies it's like they, they they scrape them away. They statistically scrape them away and put them aside because it interferes with the main question that they're trying to study. But it strikes me that you do the exact opposite. It's like you see something out there say, oh, that's interesting. Let's track this down and see what's going on. And I think that's one of the big frustrations with people with Lyme disease is like you said, there's not one you know gene. There's not the Lyme disease gene. There are these – these main patterns that we're identifying around the HFE and iron absorption, there's a pattern around the, the heme, there's a pattern around this NADPH and the NOx enzyme. And sometimes there, it's all of the above. But that's why you hear the story goes, yeah, you know, I stood on my head and counted to 10, uh, 20 days in a row and it cured my Lyme. And somebody will say, yeah, I used a Rife machine and it cured my Lyme. Some other people say, yeah, it was the saunas. Some other people will say, yeah, it was, you know, three years of antibiotics. And, you know, there's no one cure because it's not really one disease. There's just a, tr it's just a trigger. These infections are just triggers. Mm -hmm. that set up these these patterns that you're talking about. So I just want to you know say thank you for paying attention to us outliers and the people who don't fit easily into the molds because really and that's I think one of the pain and frustrations so many Lyme people have is that they've been kind of pushed aside and doctors don't know what to do. It's like god I've exhausted everything I've been taught, you know, and, and therefore it must be in your head. Yes. And that's so sad when that happens. Can I just comment on those those ads you see for uh, for NAD plus? And you know most of these ads are for products that have something called nicotinamide riboside. And when we do our study, we'll be looking at this. And, and if you dig into it, nicotinamide riboside is in the pathway of making NAD plus. So if you look at NAD plus and you say, oh my gosh, it makes NADH. It stimulates PARP to make your DNA repair. It makes NADPH. It stimulates CERT-3. It stimulates CERT-1. This is the miracle pill. Woo-hoo. 
Exactly. And then somebody starts to take it intravenously, and they feel horrible. And it's like, what happened? And, I, and I've spoken to doctors who give NAD plus and thinking that this is the fountain of youth, and it backfires. Now, we can't say for sure, but here's a theory I've come up with. And that is that if you've got the NADPH deal going on, because you've got sulfite stimulating NOx, and you've got mast cells making histamine, and you're not converting your glutamate into GABA, or you've got excess iron, when you give the body that extra NAD+, it makes more NADPH. And guess what it does? It stimulates NOx. So what we're playing around in our office with is, if I suspect people have an iron problem, if I suspect they've got a glutamate problem, a histamine problem, a sulfite problem, I say, you know what we're going to do? Let's just work on those first. Then we'll go upstream and try one of those products that gives you nicotinamide riboside. And it's a little too early in the game, but so far that seems to be working fairly well. Again, we, we look for simple answers. We look at NAD plus and think this is the panacea. And it can be. I mean, there are people that have taken NAD plus and it has been almost miraculous for them in rebuilding their health and their addictions and all those other things. But then there's others, despite their best hope, it goes wrong. And I think that's why we can now identify the people that it may go wrong. And one of my favorite sayings is I'd rather be a little too late than too soon. So I would rather wait and hold off on trying to give that NAD+. And I have a sneaking suspicion this is the same thing with methylfolate. You know, we learned about methylfolate, and it's like, oh my gosh, look at all the things that methylation does. And everything you've heard is absolutely true. So what do we do? We take a lot of methylfolate every day. And then it backfires. Too early to say, but I think what we need to do with these NAD products or the nicotinamide riboside is just take them a couple of days a week, give the body a break, work on the histamine, the, the glutamate, and other things, and pulse it. We are becoming a huge fan of pulsing because we tend to think if it's a little good for you, a lot must be really good. Uh, I'm very fortunate on our board of directors, we have uh, you know, a functional medicine doctor who allowed me to try some NAD nasal spray, and I'm just playing around with it. And I'm finding, now this is the, this is the real deal. This isn't the precursor. This is the real NAD+. And I'm finding I do best when I pulse it a couple days, take a couple days off. Way too early, but I think that's part of what we have to look at on many of these things. We can't just push things all the time. We're looking at how to pulse mTOR versus autophagy. And that's one of the things we're going to be working on. We're going to be looking at the clock genes and circadian rhythms. That'll be part of our future research of how do we pulse these things so that we're not just constantly pounding. And I think that's where, you know, well-meaning people go wrong. They'll get an idea in their head and let's take a lot of it. It works and then backfires. So that's all part of what we have to learn as well. And that's what makes this so fascinating. And that's why we'll probably be a couple of years from now is talking about study number 11. <laughs> <laughs> from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, there's, for people who are looking, as we said before, for people who are looking for the easy answer for, you know, where's the one step, where's the one supplement, where's the one protocol, uh, I think they're going to be disappointed. It is the 3D chess game played underwater, and sometimes they even float. But I think if we keep plugging away at this, get some AI into it, uh, we may make our ability to give you know functional doctors and acupuncturists and others like yourself the tools to say, you know what, do this test. 
do that test. You know, verify it. Just don't make decisions based upon the genome. And then you can have personalized, targeted for that individual, uh, a protocol that uh, you're going to hit more home runs than strikeouts. Can't come a moment too soon. Yes, we're, we need it. Bob, you've been very generous with your time. Once again, thank you very much. If people are interested in contacting you or your clinic, or if you're a practitioner and wants to learn more about genetic nutrition and the foundation, how can they get hold of you? Sure. Our clinic is uh, on the web, T-O-L Health. That stands for Tree of Life, but just the letters T-O-L Health.com. Phone number 717-733-2003. That's 717-733-2003. There's three of us here that uh, that do the genetic nutrition. Uh, if someone is a health professional, uh, we created a software called Functional Genomic Analysis. And uh, all you have to do is go to dnasupplementation.com. You can get a free trial. We have online certification courses. Uh, and I'm really excited. Uh, second week of September, we're going to be having our first genomic conference on environmental toxicity. Uh, second or third weekend in November, we're going to be having our uh, our second annual uh, genomic conference in Hershey, Pennsylvania on uh, neurotransmitters. So uh, we're really excited about those two that are coming up. And uh, when you go to uh, the dnasupplementation.com, there's links to the upcoming conferences, and we'd love to have you there. And the online course is the uh, modules that uh, about 30 hours of, of me lecturing, and there's actually a certification. So if you're a health professional, uh, you can try the first three modules for free and then use the uh, functional genomic analysis software and the Your Genomic Research uh, resource uh, genetic test. We, uh, we used to use 23andMe, but they dropped so many things, we now have our own. And the nice thing about our own it's never shared with anyone. We don't sell it to pharmaceuticals or anyone else. It's locked up. You can be anonymous if you want to be. Uh, you know, feel free to be Mickey Mouse the tenth, and uh, you know you're welcome to do that. You don't have to share your personal information if you don't want to. So uh, we're here for the uh, for the clients. You know, we're not a medical facility. We're more like health coaches, uh, but we do train uh, licensed uh, doctors who are uh, able to uh, treat and prescribe and. We do that online, and we do that in uh, conferences. And our last conference in November, uh, boy, what a great time we had. I know you were there, and you actually helped contribute, and what a valuable resource you made. And the the event was recorded, so if any health practitioners would like to see it, uh, contact us, and as soon as it's edited, they can uh, watch the seminar, because I think uh, we just had a fabulous time. We were sold out. We had to turn people away. We filled up the whole place, and... Uh, we, we just had a phenomenal time. I was more than pleased at the response we got from, and people came from Australia, Brazil, Mexico, uh, California, Alaska. It was amazing the distance people traveled uh, to be there. And it was a fabulous time. I'll never forget our first genomic conference. It was amazing. I'm glad you plugged it because if you hadn't, I would have. <laughs> it, it was that good. And so if you're a practitioner, and you have any interest or think you might be interested in uh, pursuing this type of uh, resource for your patients, you can't do a better job than uh, go listen to Bob and his group talk about uh, this exciting 
uh, way of looking at nutrition and health and putting it all together and making sense of it. So if you're near any one of those conferences and you can carve the time out, I can't recommend it highly enough. Yes, but I didn't say the uh, September event's going to be in Denver, Colorado. Denver and Hershey. Denver and Hershey. And let me just again say, you have been such a valuable contributor. Uh, every time I throw a question out, you're the first one to respond with awesome research. So uh, some of this wouldn't be happening without your help as well. Okay, so thank you so much for your for your time and effort into contributing to uh, to the research. So, And if, if somebody looks at the, the map that we made, the inflammation map, uh, you'll see McKay's name right on there as one of the contributors uh, to us. So again, for doctors, we have a, a map that's uh, gigantic that shows all the pathways that lead to this uh, NADPH steel. So again, McKay, so much thanks to you for uh, bringing valuable input. I can point to places on the map. It's like, oh, yeah, McKay taught us this and showed us that. So thank you for that valuable contribution. Well, Bob, I wouldn't be contributing anything at all if it wasn't for you and your pioneering work and the, your inspirational insights in, into health. So it's it's fun and it's an honor to be a small part of your group. And I uh, just love working with you. Well, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on, my friend. It's uh, I'm, I count myself so blessed to have such talented people who uh, chip in because uh, it takes a lot of people to uh, to make this happen. Almost as good as artificial intelligence. <laughs> Just about. <laughs> On that note, thanks so much. My pleasure. This was a wonderful interview. You know... I really enjoy how as these studies have gone along, um, I can kind of tell Bob is kind of shifting and moderating his opinions of how these different things are work, all work. Like, for example, with like the chronic inflammation type stuff, he's gone from saying, oh, yeah, no, 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 that's bad to saying, well, you know what, it has a place. And that's just a very much more nuanced view of how the body works that I very much appreciate. It is. And one of my favorite sayings I say to myself and, and, and patients from time to time is the body has no spare parts. And I think that goes for some of these pathways as well. There no, It's not an accident the body makes this stuff. It uses everything for a good purpose. It's just when things get out of balance. I hate to keep going back to, oh, balance, everything's balanced. But it really is when things get out of balance or off the rails that we have chronic problems. And unfortunately, Lyme disease is one of those things that tends to kick things out of balance in a hurry. A car crash, as it were. Exactly. It's a big car crash. <laughs> yeah. While we were away in between the introduction and the outroduction, we call this the outro here at Lime Ninja Radio, we did a little researching on the different molecules that heme shows up with. So, of course, we have hemoglobin, and that's the blood, but we also have myeloglobin, neuroglobin, cytoglobin, cytochrome P450, cytochrome B5, cytochrome C, and that's an electron transport chain inside the mitochondria, peroxidase, which breaks down hydrogen peroxide, 
Catalase, which also breaks down hydrogen peroxide. Tryptophan pyrolase, I don't know what that does. Nitric oxide synthases, so INOS, ENOS, and NNOS. So nitric oxide is so important in so many functions in the body. And if you're not making heme, you can't make the enzyme to make nitric oxide. And the last is SUOX, and SUOX is so important in the detox pathway, turning nitrites into nitrates. Do I have the right? No, sulfates into sulf. Wait a minute. Sulfites into sulfate so they can be excreted. There we go. Wow. Anyway, one of those eights to eights. <laughs> and it's, you, need to it's go back to, you need to go back to Bob Miller School. <laughs> I, I do. And it's SUOX. So it S stands for sulfur there. So it is, it is uh, sulfites to sulfates. Yep. So that's a long list. And none of those are going to work as well if you have problems in your heme pathways. And that's the major message there. Yep. Heme is so critically important. This pathway is so important. Okay. That's enough biochemistry for the day. I hope your <laughs> brain didn't explode on us, but it is important. So begin to learn about these things if you haven't already and how you can help yourself. And we'll bring Morley Robbins in real soon, and he'll give us an update on his root protocol, which really is designed to help the body manage iron inside and help these pathways really work well. And if you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, hit the subscribe button so you won't miss an episode. And if you really like what we're doing, leave us a review on your podcast app. And if you really, really, really like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio and want more, be sure to head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com to get notified when we open the doors of our Tickborn Illness School. Also, do you have feedback, suggestions for guests, really anything? Send an email to feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. And to steal another tagline from another podcast, love us or hate us, just don't ignore us. <laughs> and last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know? Ninjas can pour a pancake so thin, it only has one side. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.